So we are in Matthew chapter 1, looking at Jesus, the rightful heir to the throne. Uh, As we move from one gospel, the gospel of John, to another now, Matthew, we might ask the, the question, why are there four different books written about the good news of Jesus Christ? What are the benefits of four? And besides the added credibility that four different authors give to the story of Jesus Christ, each author provides different perspectives for different audiences. The Apostle John, we're going to know this well, the Apostle John wanted the world to see and believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He gave his purpose statement in chapter 20, verse 31. And we know this verse, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He opened his gospel with a bang by writing, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word, verse 14, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. And we say, well, what kind of glory? Glory as of the only Son from the Father. God glory that kind. And then, I think the climax of the Gospel of John, when Thomas, the doubter, remember this book is about believing, when Thomas, the doubter, sees Jesus after the resurrection, after saying he wouldn't believe unless he could put his hands into the holes of Jesus' body, Thomas sees Jesus and cries out, My Lord and my God. Thomas saw and believed and surrendered his life to God the Son. Now, Luke. Luke was a Gentile and a physician. Dr. Luke was an intelligent, logical man. His gospel was written by a Greek himself and for the mind of a Greek. Being the logical man he was, he gives his purpose statement right at the beginning of his book. And here, so here are the first four verses of Luke's gospel. And I try to make it sound all, you know, official and academic, but I'm not going to do it very well today. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word um, have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. And here's why, verse 4. That you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. That's Luke. Mark. Mark was the cousin of Barnabas, close friend and ministry partner uh, with the Apostle Peter. And Mark seems to be written for a Gentile audience as well. And there's fewer inclusions of things that would have been of interest to the Jewish mind, the Jewish people. Things such as Old Testament references. There are some in Mark, but not nearly as many. Um, Interactions with the Jewish religious leaders and genealogies. Mark emphasizes Jesus as the suffering servant. And Mark 10.45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And now, there's Matthew. Unlike some of the other gospel books, Matthew wrote with the Jewish people in mind. Matthew wanted the Jewish people to know that Jesus is the son of David, who was to rule on the throne forever. 
And now the Jews had been told that their Messiah would reign forever, that there, that there would be people who would come under his reign, uh, become a part of the kingdom of God from the nations, not just them, but from the nations. And how do you think a book should end that's written to the Jews telling them that Jesus is the king? Well, how about this? Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I am the king. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's how Matthew ends the Great Commission. And how do you think a book setting out to convince Jewish people that Jesus is their promised king, the son of David who will reign forever? How should that book start? How about with a genealogy? Yay. All right. Matthew 1, 1. You ready? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, the name Jesus is the English way to say Jesus, which is the Greek way to say Yeshua, which means in Hebrew, the Lord saves or Yahweh saves. So, yes, Jesus and Joshua have the same name. It's confusing, but it's okay. Uh, Second, the term Christ means the same thing as Messiah. Remember that uh, one is just the Greek, one is the Hebrew equivalent of each other. They both mean anointed one. As in, uh, the one that God had promised to Israel throughout the Old Testament. Matthew is saying, the anointed one has come. And third, Jesus is identified as the son of David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, we see God promising David uh, this. He said, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I'll raise up your offspring after you. Uh, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Forever. So if there was a question about which son of David, that one. The son of David that would reign forever. That's the son of David Matthew's talking about here. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, we hear this often at Christmas time. For to us a child is born... To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And it says this, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It's going to happen. And then finally, in verse 1, Matthew describes Jesus as the son of Abraham. The son of Abraham. And this was God's promise to Abraham. This is from Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. And the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, through your seed, coming out of this great nation, God said all the families of the earth 
shall be blessed. Go and make disciples of all nations. Now, as we read through these generations, we're going to do this one more time. Look for things that Matthew adds to the standard, so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, and so-and-so begat so-and-so and all that. When we see those extra details, those are the things we want to be looking out for. Those are there for a reason. Okay, so let's do a little eye spy here as we read through this genealogy. Verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac the father of Jacob. Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. There's one. Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. There's two. And Perez the father of Hezron and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram the father of Amminadab. Amminadab, Nashon. I'm going to go just hitting names here. Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. There's another one. And Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse the father of David the king. That's a very significant thing there. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. There's another one. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And now we're going to read this list of kings. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah to Asaph. Asaph to Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat to Joram. Joram, Uzziah. Uzziah, Jotham. Jotham, Ahaz. Ahaz, Hezekiah. Hezekiah, Manasseh. Manasseh, Amos. Amos, Josiah. Josiah, Jeconiah. And his brothers. At the time of the deportation to Babylon. Verse 12. After the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, Zerubbabel, one of the funnest names to say. Zerubbabel, the father of Abiad. Abiad, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, Azor. Azor, Zadok. Zadok, Achim. Achim, Eliad. Eliad, Eliezer. Eliezer, uh, Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph. And here's the last one. The husband of Mary. Of whom... Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So, where were the side notes or those little parenthetical statements? There's four kinds. Okay, number one, we had the uh, mention of the brothers of Judah. That was our first one. Two, we had the mention of the brothers at the time of the Babylonian exile, along with Jeconiah. So we're going to look into that. Three, the mention of these five women, these five women, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, and Mary. So these five women. And then four, the last one we're going to look at, we had the mention of the fact that David was the king. Why did Matthew seem to need to indicate that when all of those guys were kings? He gave that to David. So, Let's talk about this. Why did Matthew uh, emphasize these things in the midst of this otherwise fairly normal genealogy? What is he pointing us to? What is God doing? So number one, the brothers of Judah. This one's going to uh, be a good warm-up for the rest. Uh, It's nice and easy. Affirming makes sense. And you'll see what I mean as we get through these. This one's pretty easy to get us started. This is our warm-up round. Uh, In Genesis 49... 
Genesis 49, uh, when Jacob is old and blessing his sons. You might remember this scene. Uh, the heads of the 12 tribes are all gathered together, and Jacob is giving these blessings to each one of them. He says this to Judah. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? And then this in verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Peoples meaning nations. So who is this pointing forward to? Why will the scepter not depart from the one who comes through Judah? Because it's talking about the king of kings. It's talking about Jesus Christ. So we point forward to Christ in this. Now, number two, this king Jeconiah and his brothers who were deported. Uh, Matthew emphasized the problem of this king and his kin at the time of the Babylonian exile. And Jeconiah was actually the grandson of Joshua. Uh, More on the skipping of generations and this genealogy later. He was referred to as Coniah. So if you want to shorten Jeconiah, if you want to shorten Jeconiah, you can shorten to, to, to Coniah for Jeremiah in the book of Jeremiah. So we're going to look at Jeremiah chapter 22, uh, verses 24 to 30. And I'll tell you, this knocked my socks off when I read it. I had forgotten all about this. So get ready. This is exciting, okay? As excitedly as I can pronounce this. Jeremiah 22, verse 24. As I live, declares the Lord, though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, King of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. But to the land which they will long to return... There they shall not return. Is this man, Coniah, a despised, broken pot, a vessel no one cares for? Why are he and his children hurled and cast into a land that they don't know? Oh, land, land, land. I say land sakes, right? Oh, here it is. Land, land, land. Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man, Jeconiah, Write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. So none of Jeconiah's offspring is ever going to be able to reign as king. So what just happened here? Besides this, God just told Jeconiah, none of your boys or your grandsons or ever after that are ever going to be king in Israel. That's a major problem. Think of the promise to Abraham, or to, well, Abraham, but specifically to David. David's going to have seed that rules forever. And Jeconiah was just told, your line's done. 
That's a massive issue. So, so let's look at this here. Uh, Matthew just reminded us of the fact that it is naturally impossible for there to even be a rightful heir to the throne. Uh, there goes the whole genealogy right there. There can be no king, and so there must be no chance for a Messiah. But we, we did say natural-born son. Uh, no natural-born son or grandson of Jeconiah. But what if God were to do something supernaturally? We're going to have to look into that and see what's coming. Uh, the very next chapter, actually, chapter uh, 23 of Jeremiah, verse 5 says this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up. I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. God says, I got this. This is going to work. So Joseph, think about this. Joseph, Mary's husband, is under this curse. He is the rightful heir to the throne, but he's not the king. And neither was his father or his grandfather before him. And no son of Joseph's would ever be the king either. If Jesus had been Joseph's biological son, he would not have been able to be king. Under this curse from Jeconiah. But Jesus isn't Joseph's biological son. Jesus is Joseph's legal son. So that's number two. Now let's look at these women. These women. It was very, very strange for women to be mentioned in any Jewish genealogy. Uh, this is crazy. It, it is said that Jewish men used to pray, Thank you, God, that I am not a woman, that I am not a Gentile. What a guy. They had prayed this. So Matthew includes in this gene genealogy five women, four of which are Gentiles. Okay, so there you go. Number one, Tamar. Tamar. In Genesis 38, we learn that uh, Judah brought Tamar to be his son's wife. But he was wicked. And it says the Lord put him to death. Then according to custom, Tamar was given to the second-born son, who was also wicked and also died. And after this, Tamar was told to go home and live like a widow until son three was old enough to get married. Sounds like a great plan. Uh, so, uh, probably not a situation any of us would be hoping for our daughters to marry into, right? Um, so here, it's story time now. Follow along. We're going to be in Genesis 38. As the story continues, I'm going to start reading in verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah died. And when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shears, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar, Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garment and covered herself up with a veil wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enium, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah has, was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. And he turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. 
for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, what will you give me that you may come into me? And he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? And she replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that's in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away. And taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, uh, the Adulamite, to to, uh, take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute and who was at Aeneum at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. We. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she's pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law. By the man to whom these things belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. And then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I. So that's Tamar. Rahab. Rahab is uh, found in Joshua chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab. And they lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she brought them up to the roof. And hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. And then later, when this battle actually occurs, Joshua 6, this is after the fall of Jericho, verse 22. But the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said to them, go into the prostitute's house. So they had reported, right? Go to the prostitute's house, bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. And so the young men who had been spies went in, brought out Rahab and her father and mother, brothers, all who belonged to her. And they brought out the relatives, put them outside the camp of Israel. They burned the city with fire, everything in it. 
among the silver, gold, vessels of bronze, iron, they put into the treasure of the house of the Lord. But Rahab, the prostitute, and her father's household, and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And what happened to Rahab? She has lived in Israel to this day. Realize, people from outside Israel became Israel. Just like you became a child of God by believing and assimilating into God's people. Ruth. Ruth was a Moabitess. She was from Moab. They were haters of Israel. But what did Ruth do? Uh, The widowed Ruth clung to her mother-in-law and promised, Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And and what did Ruth become to Naomi in the fourth chapter of Ruth? The women of Bethlehem, the women of Bethlehem, speaking to Naomi, call her your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons. That's what Ruth became to Naomi. And of course, Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 26 and 27. Uh, this is after David spotted Bathsheba from afar and sinned. After David uh, tried to avoid and hide the physical results of pregnancy by calling Uriah home. After failing to avoid and hide and rather killing uh, of this faithful man. We see at the end of Second Samuel 11 that this happened. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, it says this, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. What else was she going to do? She, she was a widow, and David was king. It says this at the end of that verse, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now, when you think through your family tree, when you share old family stories or or history at a reunion or over a Christmas dinner, what kinds of things do you highlight? Maybe veterans who served in famous battles. Uh, maybe some famous people in your in your family history. Famous people from the past. Some of you might be thinking of those people in your head right now. Um, But what did Matthew just highlight? And what might the Jews have thought about it? We have Judah who slept with his daughter-in-law Tamar, who was dressed like a prostitute. And Judah, Judah should have been Perez and Zerah's grandfather. Instead, he was their father. Rahab actually was a prostitute and a Canaanite. Ruth was a Moabitess. Bathsheba, she was not the wife of David's youth, was she? And her husband Uriah, who was actually mentioned in the genealogy to make sure we remember him as well. It doesn't say Bathsheba, does it, in Matthew 1? It says the wife of Uriah. He was killed to get him out of the way. So the king could marry the married woman that he just impregnated. And remember that child died in infancy. Solomon was the second born son. 
between David and Bathsheba. But I hope you notice something else about all these women. I hope you notice this. Tamar was found to be more righteous than Judah. Rahab joined with and lived in Israel. She rightly feared the Lord. Ruth also converted Naomi's God. Though Naomi and her husband didn't seem to do much believing in him or to give Ruth any reason why. He became Ruth's God. And Ruth became better to her than seven sons. And Bathsheba. This poor woman was left to lament. It was all she could do. And the Lord was displeased. And he was displeased with David. And God made sure that the next king of Israel and every other king thereafter until the Christ would come through the line of David and Bathsheba. She was honored. Christ has honored Bathsheba through this. And then there was Mary. We haven't talked about Mary yet. The fifth woman mentioned in this genealogy. Now, without giving the story away, okay, we got to save some of that for the next three weeks as we go through Matthew 1 and 2. If you don't, if you don't believe, if someone's hearing the story of Mary and the birth of Jesus and they don't believe, things sound pretty bad, don't they? This young woman engaged to be married and she's pregnant. And Joseph knows it's not his baby. And he's sought to divorce her privately. That doesn't sound great, right? Sounds like a making of a great story. We'll get there next week, okay? But what we see over and over again with the stories of these women is, is that what the Jews, and frankly most other people as well, but what the Jews would have seen as scandalous, inappropriate, what would look like a story that's not being written the way God should be doing things, can turn out to be exactly what God was doing. God redeemed those women's lives and their stories. And as we've seen in the Gospel of John, the Jews really struggled to see the good in the story of Jesus. Matthew is giving them a warning In this genealogy, their pride and their arrogance would deceive them if they did not humble themselves to look for their king. So number four, David the king. David the king. The fourth side note in this genealogy we need to look into is this mention of David being king. And as we do, let's read verse 17 of Matthew 1. It's going to seem like uh, this verse has nothing to do with David being king, but it totally does. I'll explain. Verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14. 14 generations from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. We know... Matthew skipped over some generations when he made this list. He skipped over some. So there weren't actually exactly that many generations in each one of those chunks. And and it it doesn't mean he's a bad historian. 
Um, all you have to do is look back at a passage like First Chronicles 3, or even Luke's genealogy fills in gaps that Matthew leaves purposefully here. But the information's all there. Matthew very well could have gone to the temple. Maybe he even did at that time and gotten the full record. Even those generations through the intertestamental period after Malachi before Matthew. The point is, Matthew specifically chose to list out these generations for each section of this genealogy. So why did he want to reiterate the idea of 14? And this is... Full disclosure, this is a little strange, but don't take it too far. I don't want to take it too far. Don't you take it too far, okay? Because this is a word play that Matthew is doing here, okay? The Hebrew people were into something called gematria, where they have assigned a number value to each letter in their alphabet. It's like a math game, a math trick. And people have taken this way too far, like I said, and using it for all kinds of even mystical purposes or thinking the Bible has some sort of written code or something, which it's not. The Bible does not have secret code, okay? So please don't, nobody ask me after the service. But what Matthew has done here, he's given us these sections of 14 generations and made that very clear by writing out the words 14 generations three times. And the 14th name Given in this genealogy, the 14th generation listed is David, the king. And David's name, with the numbers assigned, adds up to, can you guess, 14. 14. Uh, There's no secret code there. Okay? It's just Hebrew wordplay. It's Hebrew wordplay. I think Matthew is trying to tell the reader... That Jesus is the son of David. David who? David the king. Which makes Jesus the rightful heir to the throne. So, just three things to finish up. To consider as we conclude. Number one, Jesus is king. Jesus is king. Is he your king? Are you a citizen of the kingdom of God? Um, citizen, Your citizenship was purchased by the king through his death. And if you've repented and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, um, then you are a citizen of this kingdom. Christ is your king. If you have never repented, I urge you to bow before the king today. Remember, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is Jesus your king? Number two, let's be humbled. Be humbled. Uh, Remember these silly Jewish men saying things like, thank God I'm not a woman and thank God I'm not a Gentile. And yet, God accomplished so much through their Uh, Beautiful conversions, these women, their faithfulness, etc. And the Jewish men in this genealogy, well, let's be real, most of them didn't have the greatest stories, did they? Many of the kings listed in this genealogy were very wicked men. Very wicked men. Nothing to brag about. How many of the people in this genealogy, though, needed a sacrifice once and for all for their sin? How many of the people in this long list of people needed salvation from their sin? All of them. 
All of them. And how many of us do? All of us. That's right. We all, men, women, and children, from the lightest to the darkest shade of skin, all Jews, all Gentiles, we all come to the table with the same desperate condition. So it's right for us to be humbled by this. Number three, be amazed. Be amazed. When we read all of these stories and think through the thousands of years and all of these generations, it's almost like God had all of this planned from the beginning. Seems like that, doesn't it? God took the previously pagan Abraham. He took Jacob the deceiver. He took a former prostitute, a little shepherd boy, a bunch of wicked and some not wicked kings. And he orchestrated all of these events, each of their lives, in such a way to arrive right here at this moment. The birth of the king. The king of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. May we increasingly be amazed by God's power, his faithfulness in keeping his promises, and his great, great Love for us. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you. There's so much that we can learn from a passage like this. God, we thank you that you uh, did meet our great need through this child, through this king, through our Savior, Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you would be honored in our response. Lord, as we continue to see um, how amazing you are and rightly being humbled uh, in who we are, that our gratitude would uh, be ever-present in our response as we follow you as our King. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.